We are here in the 11FS offices in London, and this is Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain and cryptography meet the changing world of finance, tech, and consumer products. In today's bonus episode, we bring you a special interview with Sir Geoffrey Boss, Chancellor of the High Court and Chair of the UK Jurisdiction Task Force. The Chancellor is working with the Law Tech Delivery Panel on a public consultation on the status of crypto assets, distributed ledger technology and smart contracts under English private law and is accepting feedback on this document until the 21st of June. So get in there quickly and remember to Google UK Jurisdiction Task Force of the Law Tech Delivery Panel. We had a chance to sit down with the Chancellor and hear his views on UK law, blockchain and crypto assets. Let's hear from him now. Welcome to Blockchain Insider Interviews. I'm Simon Taylor and it is my absolute pleasure to be joined by Sir Geoffrey Voss. Geoffrey, welcome to the show. We're happy you're here with us. How are you, sir? Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, you've held some great speeches recently with some pretty forward-thinking views on the law and evolving technologies. Can you just give us a view, first of all, to your role and what it is you do? I'm a judge. Uh, the Chancellor of the High Court, and I have day-to-day -day responsibility for the business and property courts of England and Wales, which is, takes place in the Rolls Building, uh, right next to the Royal Courts of Justice. And basically what uh, we do there is try business disputes of all kinds concerned with intellectual property, financial services, and trading relationships generally. Which uh, is interesting because as part of the law tech delivery panel, uh, you've actually now uh, started to look at a consultation into uh, the status of crypto assets and distributed ledger technology, as well as smart contracts under English private law. Could you um, give us a feel for why did this come about? Well, it came about because there's a certain amount of uncertainty in the legal community as to uh, what the legal status of crypto assets actually is under English law. And I believe that unless we can clarify that, then we're not going to allow smart contracts to develop um, exponentially, as we expect they may, without there being a legal backdrop, a legal infrastructure. Indeed. And uh, of course, we've seen several other countries take steps to do this. Uh, we've seen uh, Gibraltar and Malta maybe make moves in, uh, and possibly even Jersey as well. Um, so there's a risk of that going offshore. Uh, there's France has now taken some serious moves and, and Singapore. Uh, so, you know, is there a risk that the UK could get left behind if we're not doing this in, on, a, on a global stage? I hope not. And I hope we're going to approach it from a slightly different angle from many of the countries you've mentioned. I think there's a big difference between law and regulation. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those countries have been looking at how you regulate the use of crypto assets, whereas I want to be very clear about what the legal status of crypto assets is. Interesting. And so once we can achieve that, uh, then I hope the rest of it will fall into place because the English common law is incredibly flexible mm -hmm. and it's incredibly resourceful. And it's, it's built in order to deal with rapidly changing commercial situations. But if the underlying legal status is not clear, there may be a problem. Indeed. Uh, and so talk to me more about the uh, sort of the w this consultation. Uh, the consultation is open now, as I understand it. But if I were uh, a listener and I'm uh, into law, or I care about the future of smart contracts and financial services and everything uh, to do with um, smart contracts, blockchain and DLT. How, how would I get involved? Well, you just uh, uh, look on the Law Society's website to find the consultation and respond by the 21st of June. 
Fantastic. So not long. Uh, make sure you get in there now, listeners. Um, just diving into this a little bit more and picking underneath it. Are, are there, uh, could you give me some examples of some of the knowledge or legal gaps when it comes to solving disputes arising from a transaction on a blockchain? Well, I think that's a, the really big question. I think some coders at the moment are trying to write code that will exclude legal remedies. Mm -hmm. And I regard that as a shame because I'd like to see a dispute resolution mechanism developed specially for use with smart legal contracts on the blockchain. And that needs to be streamlined, it needs to be economical, it needs to be quick. And I'm keen that we shouldn't frighten the innovators into trying to avoid allowing parties to smart legal contracts to obtain legal redress when that's justified, when it's needed, because things have gone seriously wrong. I, I so. Yeah. Sorry, I noticed in your statement that you say uh, when things have gone legally wrong, but that doesn't obviate that uh, you couldn't find uh, good value in standards work or preventing disputes from occurring in the same place as you see uh, has happened with, for instance, the ISTA framework and, and the master schedule that, that comes there. So there's, there's still room to reduce the scope for, for disputes. Absolutely. I mean, I would expect the vast bulk of smart contracts to execute without any problem arising at all. But as the Dow scandal showed, mm -hmm. there sometimes, not often, is a real reason why the law might need to get involved. So are there existing practices um, that can handle disputes already, or do we need to sort of rethink those a little bit? I think we need to rethink them a bit. I think there are practices, but we need to adapt them to make them more appropriate. There are more and more lawyers making themselves familiar with the technology and that's not because they want to stifle into innovation, it's because they want to support development, and that's a good thing. And I think one of the problems is coders uh, being sometimes shy of lawyers, and maybe vice versa. Uh, but lawyers can help. And I'll give you an example. One uh, blog uh, described a recent speech I gave as having been free legal advice for less than £500 an hour. <laughs> now, I don't see this as an area where lawyers will want to make a fortune. Instead, I think they'll try and work with the technological community to make the technology work for consumers and small businesses across borders. I think increasingly you're seeing uh, engineers taking tentative steps to learning some of the early uh, kind of concepts of software engineering in order to fully understand some of these challenges, um, which, which I think is quite interesting. You know, are there challenges to A, the, the sort of the learning curve that lawyers have to go on as well as the engineers? Um, and also what about uh, kind of the, uh, the nature of crypto assets and smart contracts themselves? Are they creating challenges? They really are. And um, I think the challenge is to make sure that smart contracts can contribute a vast amount more to our economy and our society. And once we provide the necessary legal infrastructure for smart contracts, I think they'll quickly become ubiquitous, as we've been promised really for years. And they'll be used in areas that one can hardly imagine. And they'll save everybody a vast amount of time and money and cut down on the scope for disputes, mm -hmm. uh, always as provided, as I've always said, that there's a simple, 
streamlined, cost-effective dispute resolution process available when things have really gone wrong. And as long as also that we have, I think, understanding from both sides, the engineering community and the law community sort of looking to meet in the middle on, on some of that issue. Yeah, I think what you're looking for really is to create a dedicated new dispute resolution process that doesn't uh, frighten the horses, as I've said, mm -hmm. because I think there is a certain amount of caution on both sides. That's interesting. And that needs to be um, arbitrated. That's really interesting. Um, but speaking of smart contracts, you actually said in Liverpool, I think in earlier in May, um, that the problem with smart contracts is that they're not actually end-to-end -end legally binding. So can you tell us about that? What, what, what's missing from smart contracts? Well, what I think I actually said was that many of the most useful applications of the algorithms known as smart contracts are not, in fact, as end-to-end -end legal contracts at all. How wonderfully precise. Well, it probably was. <laughs> I am a judge, you know. <laughs> and what I then said was that the most useful applications are as components of more conventional legal relationships. Mm -hmm. And what I meant by that was that there are many applications of smart contract technology that will be valuable without being a smart end-to-end -end contract relationship. So as an example, we might agree in a financial services relationship that the value of a derivatives portfolio would be marked to market at particular times by reference to an index mm -hmm. itself recorded on the blockchain. And that part of the engagement would then be immutable, but the consequences of the figures that result might not be governed by a self-executing smart contract. I see. So the, you have this risk of actually this bit of data that drove the logic that came from this other legal entity or this other bit of software outside of the smart contract actually was in error. And so the smart contract cannot possibly manage something outside of its, its sphere of influence, as it were. And therefore, there is still a need for a dispute resolution mechanism. Well, what might be immutable might be one part of a relationship mm -hmm. that is a smart part of the relationship, but there might be other parts that are not. Indeed. Um, so is there a, a legal foundation to support some of these evolving technologies. So are, are we well placed to sort of leapfrog into the smart contract world, do you think? Difficult question. I think the answer is probably not quite yet, but the legal foundation is not as monodimensional as many people think. There are many ways in which the law can be used to support the practical development of new technologies. Um, first, I think we need to put in place as I've, I've alluded to really already, an established dispute resolution clause that can be used in smart contracts um, provides the kind of dispute resolution, perhaps online, but anyway using non-traditional methods that users of new technologies will feel comfortable about. And secondly, uh, that dispute resolution process must include an element of consensual alternative dispute resolution like mediation, arbitration, mm -hmm. and other things that you can do. So what we need to understand is there's many ways to skin a cat. <laughs> it's not necessary to bring the full majesty of a lengthy and expensive trial in the business and property courts for every disagreement arising from a smart contract. So yes, I think we'll be able to provide an appropriate, proportionate, stable legal foundation 
for the new technologies using English law. And I think there are good work, bits of work from the, the technology and engineering communities to try and start to kind of meet, meet in the middle, as it were. Um, there's the, uh, the Accord project I'm familiar with. There's work by ISDA uh, and their common domain model. Uh, and there are many others out there in Hyperledger. Um, I know the folks at Consensus and R3 and, and many more that I'm forgetting here w are, are working on that. So it does seem um, at least doable, but there's work to do. There's lots of brilliant work being done. There's more to do, and I think you need to have an acceptance on both sides, amongst the tech community and the lawyers and the courts, of how it can be done in a way that gives people rights but doesn't frustrate the development of new technologies. Very interesting um, and difficult line to, to, to balance. Um, can you see, though, a generational shift when it's coming to you know, A, the engineers, and B, the people who are looking to, uh, you know, what are their expectations of access to some of this information and advice? Because you know, legal advice hasn't always been cheap, but this is an area where now if I want to create a smart contract, I can do it in sort of, in theory, in, in as little as five minutes or less even. Well, as for generational shift, totally. I'm probably 30 years older than any other person in the building. Hmm. And ge frankly, Generation Z is not going to want legal advice delivered as it sometimes is still today. They'll want to be able to seek and obtain legal advice just as they do everything else with a few taps on their smart device. But that doesn't mean that legal advice itself is going to be redundant. Uh, consumers, businesses that are going to invest money in property and transactions are going to need to protect themselves legally against issues that arise. And disputes will inevitably sometimes occur, even if the immutability of the blockchain can reduce the number of factual arguments that actually need ever to be decided. I, I really like that way of thinking about the value of blockchain in a legal context is at least these, these actors agreed this state of facts were true, but around that there is still scope for debate about, well, how did we get to that agreement and did so, which, which, is, which is useful, useful context. And, and there's another point in here that I think is helpful, which is uh, the more complex the transaction, the more, um, the more scalable and sizable the transaction, then the more risk you're taking on. And historically, engineers like to think about the happy path. They're designing a solution. They're not designing what happens when the solution goes wrong. And, yeah. and actually, lawyers are coming at it from the other ways. Like, how, what are all of the ways this can go wrong and how can we be protected? So it's yes. Sad. I mean, I hate to be thought of as a lawyer with my glass half empty because mm -hmm. my glass is actually more than half full. Mm -hmm. like, like many technical developers, I feel exactly the same way. But we have to be prepared that amongst uh, a thousand contracts, there may be something that goes wrong in one, mm -hmm. maybe 10,000, maybe a million. But on that occasion, rights have to be protected. Non-software error and fault management, I think, is a, is, a, is a slightly more engineering way of putting it, but I'm sure I'm bastardizing it. All right. Um, do we think that the legal industry has uh, fallen behind in some way in terms of where it is versus the engineers, or do we do you think there's an opportunity to, to kind of reach across to uh, the world of technology? We haven't fallen behind yet, but there's always a danger we might. And I'm very keen to encourage the far-sighted amongst the lawyers and the judges and amongst the coders too to get together and make sure that doesn't happen. I mean, I understand the pull of disintermediation, which is a lot what this is about. But we need a legal foundation for everything we do in business so that people's rights are not ignored. 
But what we need is a legal foundation that doesn't have to be stultifying, doesn't have to hamper innovation. It should be designed to promote and encourage the greatest innovators in our society. And it seems to me, looking around this place, yeah. there's lots of them here. Yeah, there's, there's no luck at 11FS, that's for sure. So um, just changing gears slightly um, and, and diving a bit more into the detail, uh, we talk a lot about crypto assets and you know, crypto assets being the digital assets, everything from Bitcoin and Ethereum, but also uh, representations of real world assets. And there's, there's some confusion in there. But can either of those be classified as, as property? Well, this is precisely the question that the UK Jurisdiction Task Force that you mentioned earlier is asking. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing is getting a definitive legal statement that will tell us the answer to that question. And if the answer is no, or partly no, then we're going to see whether it's going to be possible to get the Law Commission to look at changing the oh, law wow. on a simple basis that will allow people to do what they want to do in business terms on a, on a, a safe legal foundation. That's phenomenal. I mean, I think the uh, openness to solving those issues is, is if nothing else, uh, really, really powerful and encouraging. And I think uh, everyone listening uh, should, should be galvanized into you know, kind of uh, checking the website and getting involved if they have a view in it. Um, I, I want to get to sort of the next thing that I was wondering about, which is uh, you know, really this um, anonymity issue. You know, people talk about uh, can you really have uh, a smart contract between anonymous parties that's legally binding? Is that possible? You know, what, if I don't know who's, who's party to the contract, how do, I, how do I know where they are in the world? Never mind. So you've got issues of jurisdictionality and, and countless others. Sometimes a hard question. Jurisdiction is a different question from um, pseudonymous parties. Mm. But contracts can be made between agents acting for principles which are undisclosed. Interesting. And I don't see why the context of smart contracts should make that different. But it's something that's going to be specifically dealt with in the legal statement that comes out of this consultation I've been talking about. Fantastic. And very quickly, as you gaze into your crystal ball, uh, what do you see happening with um, blockchain and legal processes in the future? Are we going to see um, sort of the, as many fear, slowly the technology sort of fades into the distance as the hype from two, three years ago around some of the prices has disappeared and this becomes a, an afternote? Or do we actually think that uh, there's really something here? Uh, it may take longer than some had initially hoped, but there's absolutely something substantial. I think there's something substantial in smart contracts, certainly. I think there will be unimaginable developments in the next 20 years. Uh, the development of crypto assets and smart contracts employing probably some kind of updated blockchain technology mm -hmm. uh, rather than the original idea of blockchain is likely to affect almost every area of our lives in years to come. But I'm not stupid enough as a 60-something judge to try to predict precisely how. Mm -hmm. I hope you'll forgive me for that. Uh, I, I would not include the word stupid, but uh, yes, I, you are more than forgiven. I think uh, they, they often say the wisest man admits that he knows nothing. So um, that shows some wisdom clearly. Uh, so, Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining. Where can people find out more about you and what you're doing? Well, you can find out more by looking at the uh, consultation that I've mentioned. You can uh, have a look on the web and there's some of my speeches there. And um, 
I think if you search Jeffrey Voss, you'll find one or two results. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Just to remind you all, this podcast is brought to you by 11FS and we are a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services. We also create truly digital propositions working with banks, big techs and all kinds of companies who want to get the most out of where finance meets customers. Want to hear more Blockchain Insider every single Thursday? Well, the subscribe button is right there. And if you're already subscribed, throw us a review. Uh, We really, really love those reviews. And you can find me at SYTaylor. And don't forget, you can find us at Beach. Chain Insider on Twitter. Big thank you to our production team here at 11FS, producer Petrit, Laura and Hannah, and of course Alex and Michael, our editors. Thank you for listening and goodbye for now.